Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is Charles Cantor, Senior Portfolio Manager at Newberger Berman. Charles, great to have you with us on the program. I know you've been thinking about the following, and I've been thinking about it too. Privilege, the privileged companies that have the access to the liquidity to get through this particular crisis. Walk me through your thinking at the moment. Look, I think we're in unprecedented times. It's all about duration and when we restart the economy and the businesses that survive that lull in activity um, are going to and then benefit thereafter. So for us, privileged are companies that you thrill to own um, when the market's um, going down because you know that the strength of the business model, the brand, the distribution system, the technology, the customer engagement um, makes them a much stronger company um, over time and they'll end up with higher revenues and higher profits two to three years from now as you enter the nadir of low activity. So you're excited to own them on the way down and, and you always want them in your portfolio when, when, when normalcy returns to the environment. Um, these are businesses that have the duration, the balance sheet flexibility um, to, to get us through this time. Um, and, and that's what's going to matter. We think it's going to be um, a really, really difficult time for we companies and for we countries. And we think um, those that are privileged, those that have flexibility, um, will end up well, stronger, bigger, and better. I guess that defines J.P. Morgan and four other banks out there. I'll let you decide which ones they are. But are you predicting then bank consolidation because the smaller, the weaker can't survive? You know, bank consolidation hasn't really happened for, for, a, for a very long time. The, the large banks themselves can't actually aggregate um, any longer. I, I, I just feel that it's an environment, you know, it's really hard. Um, to run a business with leverage if your revenues go to zero. And so this question on duration is fundamental to the health of our economy and fundamental to, 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 to the nature of the recovery we see when, when, we, when at some point uh, this nation is, is blessed with, with, with better health. Um, and it, it's going to take a Herculean effort um, to get this economy um, restarted. And so the risk of a policy mistake right now is, is large, um, but I would never bet against the innovation, the entrepreneurial spirit uh, of this fine country. So I'm ultimately very bullish on America. Charles, I want to go to that point. Uh, Tom was referencing J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon coming out in the shareholder letter saying that he's expecting a bad recession ahead with financial stress similar to the 2008 crisis. Do you agree? Look, I think we're there right now. Uh, economic activity um, has plummeted to, to, to levels unimaginable um, a month ago at speeds that are unprecedented. Um, output across this economy for the vast majority of, of sectors um, is down, you know, dramatically, 50, 60, 70 percent. And ultimately, um, that stress falls all the way back um, to the financial system. And the question is, um, the time it takes for it to fall back. And so the longer, um, the, the, the amount of time one ultimately waits um, is not a linear function. It's an exponential function, meaning for every 10 days we wait to restart the economy, um, it, it'll take 50 days or so to get us 
to, to get us where we need to be. So the, the banks ultimately bear all the liabilities of those that, that don't get paid, whether you're not paying your commercial rent, whether you're not paying your suppliers or your inventory providers. Um, and it becomes a amount of time. And so they're more than well capitalized. They've got more than enough um, federal, uh, federal stimulus um, and monetary support for now, but it becomes a question of, 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 of when. Um, and the longer the when is, the harder it will be for our financial system. Well, Charles, let's think about that a little bit further. Someone said to me recently that unlike 2008, banks are being seen as part of the solution now, not part of the problem. Are you saying that's a mistake? No, I don't think so. The banks are lending right now. There was no real lending taking place post-2008. I I don't think this is comparable to 2008. I think the volatility is. I think think the range of outcomes possibly. But in 2008, when I was in the markets, we sat there and wondered whether the world, the economic system as we knew it, um, was going to come to an end. Yeah, this is a question of, of, of innovation, entrepreneurial spirit, um, and time. And so it's very, very different. Very, very different. So, Charles, if there is financial stress equivalent to the 2008 crisis, where do you expect to see it the most where it hasn't necessarily been reflected yet in pricing? Look, you always see financial stress um, in credit markets. That's where it shows up. That's our leading indicator. And, 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 and there was tremendous stress in the credit markets um, regardless of asset class, um, over the last two, two and a half weeks. But, but what the Fed's now done in terms of their purchases of, of, of investment-grade credit um, is, is unprecedented and massively helpful to stabilizing credit markets and ultimately stabilizing high-yield markets. Right. So you would expect it to see it in credit spreads. Credit spreads blew out um, over 1,000 basis points and have now slowly started to close that gap, but yeah. very slowly. Charles, you were involved in the Whole Foods Amazon transaction. Can you get the three of us deliveries from Whole Foods? <laughs> yes, but you're going to need... <laughs> Thank you, need Tom. Thank duration, you. Tom. You're going to need a little duration. A little duration. Oh. Hey, Charles, always great to catch up with you. Appreciate your time this morning. Charles Cantor there, oh, Senior fabulous. Portfolio Manager at Newburger yeah. Berman. Let's bring in Joyce Chang, shall we? J.P. Morgan Chair of Global Research. Joyce, have we got our hands around just how much damage we're about to see to dividends worldwide, particularly in the United States? Well, I think you're going to continue to see um, revisions on dividends and on earnings, and I think the buybacks, um, you know, are going to be off, you know, considerably. So I don't think that this is over yet. I mean, we had the second quarter contracting in the U.S. by 25%, and we're looking at initial claims for, um, you know, to, c- to come out over seven million. So I-, I think some of these revisions are going to continue. We've already done three, you know, macro revisions over the last month, um, and even though you're seeing some tipped recovery um, in um, China right now, we still think that you have worse numbers to come for the second quarter of the year. One thing that's been a question, just going to the question of share buybacks, given the fact that share buybacks have been one of the only sources of net demand for U.S. equities, given the fact that they're off the table, how much of a technical is that that's going to push valuations lower? Has that already been priced in? 
Well, a, a lot of the technical um, sell-off we think um, you know, did occur. This is kind of why you had the bounce back off of the month-end rebalancing at the end of the month. So our estimate is, if you could take a look at <clears throat> aggregate at retail flows that could go into the bond and equity markets, you still have $1.5 trillion that could go in over a period of time. But some of those sources of support, like the buybacks, will not be there. And you've got the earnings revisions downwards. And you have the retail money is probably not going to come in you know, as rapidly as some of these flows that we saw that stabilized the market at month end around the rebalancing. Joyce, I read carefully this weekend, not only your research, but the compendium that you write on international economics. What's the level of belief we have now? What's the level of conviction and all the really hard thinking that's going on? Look, look, the situation in emerging markets is really dire. They have neither the health care systems or the resources or really some of the fallback that they've had is usually going to the developed markets countries for assistance. So it's really all on the International Monetary Fund now. The Fed came back with the swap lines, but that's where I think you see a lot of downside risk and many countries that have really underreported the figures. And even in China, you know, they've changed the methodology here. Um, and I think the real test in China is whether they reopen the schools at the end of May um, and the beginning of June on whether they can contain a second wave. So this is all very fragile right now. With all of the support from the government, um, the government, the Fed that you you have seen, um, you've seen some tipped stability in the financial markets from the very lows that we hit. But I think on the economic data, you continue to see the revisions come downwards. Um, In particular, the labor markets have really been in free fall here. Joyce, let's transition just a little bit to a delicate conversation. You've touched on it, the underreporting. There have been accusations, in fact, reports, according to a, an Intel report to the, to the White House, that China is still underreporting the amount of cases and the amount of deaths as well. And I wonder if we can fold that into what is happening with emerging markets at the moment. There are going to be a lot of countries that can't deal with this, can't afford to deal with this. And I just wonder the tension that emerges on the other end of this between the countries that are drowning in debt and can't afford to pay it back and the accusations being thrown out at China that they covered it up and didn't deal with it well enough. Well, I mean, you have seen China change the methodology, and they now are including the asymptomatic cases. That's raising questions on whether they are at the end of containing this curve. Why did they change the methodology right now? But you take a look at some other countries like India, which is going under containment right now, and there are estimates that there's only 19 tests for every 1 million residents. So you have that many of these emerging markets countries are very densely populated. The containment measures are harder to enforce, and the healthcare systems are weaker. So we've seen the first statements from the IMF calling out for debt relief for the frontier emerging markets, um, the poorest emerging markets countries. But I think this is the debate you're going to see from the fallout of this, whether it's the emerging markets or some of the debate that you're seeing in Europe, it's going to be about burden sharing and risk sharing and how this has really sort of changed the metric um, you know, for the way we need to talk about um, you know, the, the, the level of debt that yeah. will be sustainable. Well, Joyce, let me follow up on that just a little bit and make it a little bit more pointed. Do you expect these emerging market countries, just as far as burden sharing is concerned, to put China on the spot to shoulder a lot of that burden? 
I think that, you know, China is trying very hard to, as the source of the contagion, and also as the country that has sort of a deeper understanding of this because they were the first in, they are trying to provide some support. So if you look at 54 countries in Africa, they've provided 2,500, you know, testing kits apiece. Um, you know, we hear that they're also fast-tracking ventilators to Mexico where there has been a real shortage. So I think China is trying to see which ways it can actually um, try to get out its medical expertise you know, as a first step in um, trying to assist other countries. And look, they've even been sending medical supplies to the United States. But I do think that you will have um, you know, a discussion on which official debt China, um, developed markets as well, can yeah. be forgiven for these emerging markets, countries that are the poorest emerging markets. Joyce, appreciate your time this morning. Joyce Chang there, JP Morgan Chair of Global Research. Better news on this pandemic, there's no question about that, uh, but still very grim. The sirens here off of Central Park in New York City are really something to hear. It is persistent and just a drone that's out there is uh, the first responders do what they do as many others try to go on with their uh, lives. Some of the people looking at this are in public health. There's any number of great institutions around this nation and one of them is the Johns Hopkins University of course with their engineering long ago and far away Mr. Bloomberg was an engineering student at Johns Hopkins and he's endowed their School of Public Health. Here is their Vice Dean, Mr. Joshua Sharstein, Dr. Sharstein, on the state, the peak of this pandemic. I think that there's a little bit of a misunderstanding about this concept of a peak. And, you know, I think people, um, I think, you know, for where we are now, there will be a peak. But the only reason it's peaking is because we have shut everything down. So I think some people think when you're on the other side of the peak, it just goes down and we can open everything back up again. But if the reason it's peaking is because we've shut everything down, as soon as we open things back up, it's going to go up. And so we have to use the time um, that we have that we're buying to strengthen our healthcare system, to get more protective equipment to healthcare workers, and to build a stronger public yeah. health response. So we have another set of tools besides just shutting everything down. Dr. Sharfstein, we're flattening the curve. It's been successful in certain geographies. There's no question about that. I think of, let's say, the Baltimore Orioles. They're going to have a big game here against the Boston Red Sox. They're going to pack Cal Ripken Field. No question about that. Is it going to be safe to go to a baseball game with all those people crammed in? Well, certainly it's not safe at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know... Oriole Park at Camden Yards is a wonderful ballpark, but I think people realize that health comes first. And, you know, right now that's not possible. I think what's going to happen is we're going to have to, and I like this analogy that other people have made, maybe we've flipped off the light on our kind of world very quickly, but when we turn it back on, it's going to be more like a dimmer switch. You know, I mean, absent a miraculous treatment or vaccine, we're going to have to move very slowly. We're going to have to make sure that we're not, you know, having the cases surge so high that they put our healthcare system in jeopardy again. So I guarantee you it won't be baseball games or football matches that are going first. It's going to be, um, it send more, more people going to work, you know, um, mm -hmm. in particular industries, probably not bars and restaurants. So it's going to be, you know, uh, a slow increase and we may have to dial it back. If you look at what Singapore has been doing, Singapore has 
you know, kept a number of things open. They have encouraged social distancing. They do not have large gatherings like, you know, sporting events. Um, and they've been using a very robust public health response to keep it in check, you know, isolation, contact tracing, quarantine. But they recently had an increase in cases, so they've dialed up their social distancing. So I think it's going to be most likely a period where we're going, it's like a dimmer switch until we can really get the light all the way on. Dr. Sharfstein, let us turn to Johns Hopkins and public health. I look at it like infrastructure where the nation has a tradition of being grievously underfunded. There's no question we've been that way when we look at this emergent moment, this pandemic. What is the first order condition to better public health in America? Well, um, first, we need people. You know, public health in the United States has lost more than 50,000 workers over the last decade or so. Um, it's it's very, been very underfunded and neglected. It's very important that, you know, particularly now, urgently, there are people to do some of the core public health tasks. We're going to need partnerships because even with more people, we still won't have the reach. Um, so we're going to really have to have the private sector mobilized behind public health in different areas, provide resources like hotel space and dorms to, for people to stay when they're sick. Um, and I think, you know, we'll, you know, for the future, we're going to need to rethink um, our priorities. You know, we have mm-hmm. so little attention paid to prevention of different kinds, including preventing the harm that a pandemic can cause. Joshua Sharfstein. He is at Johns Hopkins in the Bloomberg School of Public Health. That was just wonderful. He's vice dean. And, Paul, you know, everyone we talk to in the medical community community is so holistic. They all have specialties. And, of course, Dr. Sherstein working with FDA and working with the state of Maryland on public health. But it's amazing how they can span across this pandemic and, and really inform about what's going on and what the trend is. Ted Alden joining us with the Council on Foreign Relations. Ted, Foreign Affairs Magazine provided great leadership this weekend, clearly with my read of the weekend, a wonderful essay on China and on the path forward for the government. Very controversial essay about the strength of the Communist Party, the future for Mr. Xi as well. How fragile do you perceive trade is with, with Mr. Xi? Well, I mean, I think I think trade is tremendously fragile. I mean, already before the current crisis, obviously, you had the trade war that you've been following very closely. So trade relations between the U.S. and China were pretty fragile going into this. Now you've just got a lot of incentives for countries to pursue more nationalist policies of various sorts in terms of you know export controls, hoarding medical supplies, uh, bringing back home critical supply chains. So, I mean, the the you know the the current crisis is accelerating what we saw before, which was a migration of supply chains out of China to other places in Asia, even back to the United States to some extent. So trade is pretty fragile, but the Chinese have a big incentive to keep it, uh, keep it flowing. So I think, you know, coming out of this crisis, they've been behaving pretty responsibly. So that's, that's the, the positive uh, in all of this. So, Ted, since the end of World War II, globalism has generally been the theme of trade. How big of a blow has globalism taken uh, just in the last several years, and then punctuated by this virus? Well, I mean, I think it's taken an enormous blow. You know, it's hard for us to remember where we were two or three years ago with this, you know, really 
sort of world system set up under the WTO and a variety of other regional trade agreements, companies very confident that they could locate portions of their production in wherever in the world it made most economic sense to do so. Uh, goods, services moving very freely. We're in a much more fragmented world already. The question really is how companies are going to adjust and how much of a hit that is on the cost side. And, and you know, the, the good news, again, is that companies are extraordinarily adaptable. We won't have these very lean, long supply chains that we had at kind of the height of the, of the, the globalism era. But, but we may have more redundant systems that work almost as well. So it's a very different mm. world, but it may function quite well anyway. What, what do multinationals, what do companies need, frankly, what do midsize and small businesses need on trade uh, right now from the Trump administration? I think they need more predictability. I mean, they've gone through one shock after another in terms of the tariffs, in terms of various security-related restrictions. Now, obviously, the shock coming from the the pandemic. I just think they need some predictability about, you know, here's where the administration is going to keep the rules stable. Here's where they're going to change. I mean, you look at the whole tariff process. It's become this free-for-all with certain companies well, like Apple getting <clears throat> exemptions, other companies not yeah. getting exemptions. That's really hard for smaller companies. They I, can't play that game. They I, never I, know what the rules are going to be. I got to rip up the script here. I mean, it's just real simple. <laughs> Ted Alden, have you been surprised that the president hasn't looked like a hero and just come out and said effective pandemic, we're taking the tariffs off and we'll put them back on when the pandemic's over? I think that would have been a good call. I mean, you know, I've been urging that. A lot of other people have been urging that. But, you know, the tariffs are so much a part of his political identity, right? Again, it's hard to think in the middle of this crisis, but you go back even a few months, and he was talking every day about what a great thing the tariffs have been for the U.S. economy, how much money is flowing into the United States as a result of the tariffs. So politically, that's a big U-turn for the president, even though he's pretty good at making U-turns. Uh, I think it would have been a good gesture, but, you know, as you know, they flirted with, with some reduction of tariffs on some products and then backed away from that because they said, oh, it's too complicated. So yeah. Manufacturers are getting a double whammy from the, you know, the collapse in demand the challenge in maintaining their supply chains and paying the tariffs on top of that. They're still there. So, Ted, could an argument be made that President Trump was ahead of the curve with the, you know, America first and with unilateral trade agreements? You know, you, you can make that argument. I, this will be an interesting one for the history books, right? You know, to what extent has American policy caused some of this retrenchment, caused some of this pulling back, caused some of the shortening of supply chains? Or to what extent was it really inevitable? I mean, you could argue, uh, you know, you look at, at a book like Barry Lynn's End of the Line almost 15 years ago, saying companies are very vulnerable by the extent of these supply chains, by the heavy reliance yeah. on China. You could make an argument <clears throat> that stuff was going to happen anyway. And in that sense, the President Trump really was a bit ahead of the curve. Uh, it'll be interesting to yeah. see how the history is written. He's obviously exacerbated it with his policies, but I'm not sure yeah. Caused it. He may have seen it coming, actually. Uh, really prescient, and a, a shout out to Kenneth Rogoff of Harvard University, who's way out front on the fragility of those lines uh, as well. It sounds like Napoleon on his way to Moscow. Ted Alden, thank <laughs> you so much. I can't say enough, folks, about uh, Mr. Alden's failure to adjust. It is a dense book, but hugely readable on trade. It's just a really extraordinary effort from the Council on Foreign Relations. <laughs> 
Martin Ratz, uh, Morgan Stanley joins us, their global oil strategist. Martin, what is Mr. Putin's play here? I was confused by his headline, where I think basically he doesn't want to talk to anyone. Am I wrong on that? Uh, well, Tom, I think we are all a little in the dark on uh, what exactly is going on here. Um, I have to say, we're now discussing production cuts that could be as much as 10 to 15 million barrels a day. That has taken us well outside of the range of anything that has happened in the past. So we're truly in uncharted territory. Um, given the demand destruction that has taken place, it will be inevitable that there will be some supply curtailments. But whether that will be through um, just market prices doing its work and falling to levels which are so low that it, that it forces some shut-ins, or whether that will happen on a somewhat negotiated basis with all the main producers in, in one room, um, remains, remains to be seen. Um, it is definitely the case, though, that if you listen to the rhetoric of the U.S. administration, the Russian administration, to a certain extent also the Saudis, you're starting to see that the that this level of oil price is is creating real real challenges to domestic oil industries, to government budgets, and so from that perspective, yeah, comments like the ones that we've seen also from Mr. Putin perhaps are are unsurprising. The stress in the oil industry is is very very real at this stage. I'm struggling to understand the optimism that we saw in markets and oil markets on Friday from the prospect of Russia and Saudi Arabia getting together to possibly agree on a 10% output cut, especially when the IEA says a much bigger cut needs to happen in order to stabilize markets. Can you give us some light uh, around that? Yeah, sure. Um, you're not alone struggling with this. I think many of us are um, also kind of stretching their heads. Um, so from that perspective, um, you're, yeah, as I said, you're, you're not alone. There, there's a really interesting divergence at the moment between the, the paper oil market, the futures market, which is what most people trade, versus the physical market, the, the market of you know, oil companies selling cargoes to each other. And the paper oil market is now on Brent um, in, the, in the low 30s, about $33, $34 a barrel. But the, the physical oil market is still trading at an unusually deep discount um, to this. So on Friday, for example, um, physically delivered Brent as a daily price assessment, uh, which was assessed at just $23 a barrel. So you're seeing a near, near $10 gap between where wow. the paper market is for wow. the physical market is. And I think this plays to your confusion that we're all kind of struggling with. You know, us on the barrel counting side of the market, just adding barrels of supply and demand, we're looking at the market and you think, well, geez, there's still an awful lot of oil. Inventories are going to fill. Is there, is there a reason to be so optimistic? And there are a lot of signals in the physical market that we shouldn't be. But what you're yeah. seeing in the paper market is that positioning goes very, very one-sided. Um, we all drew the same conclusions that there will be huge oversupply in the physical and the paper market. People go very, very short. And when you have these, these, these uh, you know, tweets and other things, where you sense, like, geez, maybe things are moving, then the paper market can move very, very quickly. Nobody wants to be caught short, and then you get these wild moves. But they've moved to such an extent that you now think, geez, they've overdone it a little bit. Well, let's keep it focused on the physical market, Martin, because I think this is important. And, and I come up with this from just the perspective of just a, a layman, so forgive me. But if we're very close to breaching storage capacity, it doesn't really matter what they do on the supply side because it's not going to be enough to offset the amount of demand that has collapsed. And if we are that close to breaching storage capacity, 
then is it inevitable that we actually do breach it, Martin? And I'm thinking about crude, at least on the physical side, going aggressively lower from here. Look, this is well possible. Uh, at a global level, we're probably not yet at the level of um, what in, in the industry is often called tank tops, the, the point where we reach maximum storage capacity. But regionally, uh, we're already seeing anecdotal evidence suggesting <laughs> that's the case. Saldana Bay, big storage facility in South Africa, allegedly uh, close to being full. Fajara, big storage facility uh, in the UE, allegedly close to being full. Shanghai, some facilities, Singapore's facilities where operators are saying we're getting to very full levels. Uh, you're seeing floating storage on tankers rising quite strongly. Um, that's typically um, that's expensive storage. So if floating storage goes up, that's an indicating that onshore storage is, is getting close to um, being full. And yeah, um, the amount of total storage capacity in the world is not entirely known. It's a little bit of a moving target, um, but it's broadly thought to be in the order of a billion barrels um, that can be stored from here on. We could well reach that by the end of April or sometime during May, that type of time frame. And what happens to oil prices then, yeah, is, is, um, is untested. Um, but theoretically, yeah. the oil, yeah. oil prices should fall to levels where it backs out supply yeah. from already producing fields. Too short a visit. Martin Ross, thank you so much. He's with Morgan Stanley, their global oil strategist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.